is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. My guest today is a soprano and actress who has established an international career spanning opera, theatre, concert and film. Anna O'Byrne was chosen by Andrew Lloyd Webber to recreate the role of Christine in Love Never Dies for its opening in Melbourne, before going on to play the role in Phantom of the Opera on the West End. She's performed with the likes of Anthony Warlow and Emma Thompson, sung for Charles and Camilla, and appeared in everything from West Side Story to Barnum, Guys and Dolls to A Little Night Music. But perhaps her most well-known role on these shores was as Eliza Doolittle in the 60th anniversary production of My Fair Lady at the Sydney Opera House, for which she won the Helpman Award for Best Female Actor in a Musical. Anna is back in Sydney this June for four nights only at the Playhouse of the Sydney Opera House in a one-woman show titled Becoming Eliza. So I'm delighted she's in conversation with me today. Anna O'Byrne, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Well, Julie Andrews described you as a wonderful actress with a gorgeous voice and a phenomenal top range. I suspect, though, that despite that, it must have been a little daunting knowing you were to be directed by her for a role she'd originated 60 years ago. Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, one of the most iconic actors of and performers of our time. Absolutely. And in, in your specialist field, dare I Yeah, yeah. So, so tell me about uh, that first day. Well, the, the first time I met her was in auditions. So that was very bizarre, walking into a great big studio and just seeing her behind the desk in a sort of a, a, sort of a beacon of light, you know, <laughs> She almost kind of glows. It's, it's incredible. Her aura is um, is amazing. So that was the first time I met her. But in terms of actually getting to – and I worked with her, of course, in the auditions. But, you know, that first day of rehearsal, of course, like how crazy that she was here in Australia directing that production and recreating this 1956 version of the show that she had done when she was 21 years old. I never could have foreseen that that would happen in my career, but you don't lose it. <laughs> you think that you might, but you don't because you're there to do a job, mm. you know, and that well, wouldn't be appropriate, would it? Mm. Um, <laughs> it would be the dumb thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, and, and I was there to do a job and I was there to walk a, a line as well between giving a little bit of Julie, but also bringing uh, mm. myself to the character of Eliza. Yeah, because that's the challenge, I guess, because, you know, I mean, she's such an iconic yeah. performer. The role is so iconic, whether yeah. it's, you know, My Fair Lady or Mary Poppins or yeah. The Sound of Music. It's the definitive almost. And so yeah. you, how do you not copy? How do you, how do you bring your own thing yeah, to that's it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. She's, she's in the DNA of these roles because mm. she was there at their creation. I mean, you know, My Fair Lady is based obviously on Pygmalion, but... Julie is so in there in the DNA of the show and it was my responsibility to bring to bring that and Julie's spirit was so kind of deeply embedded in in what we did she's such a generous warm loving person she mm. called us her family <laughs> She family. made us call oh. her mum, you know. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. So, um, yeah, that, that's I'm a I'm sure little... your real mother didn't mind at all. <laughs> she probably was flattered. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's fine. <laughs> oh, that's gorgeous, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, everything that I hear about her, and you're just reinforcing that, is she's so genuine. There isn't a public Julie and a private Julie. No. It's, it's all the same personality. Yeah. How was she directing you? How how was she different? Because obviously she's primarily been a performer most of her life. Mm. Was it a different experience to other directors you worked with? She was very honest about 
we had, b- before the first day of rehearsal, we we went to the house that she was staying at with her little team, her little beautiful team of, um, uh, you know, personal assistant um, and uh, her manager. Me and Alex Jennings, who played Higgins for our Sydney season, went to her house and we read through the show and we had a lovely lunch together. And, again, you know, like family, just so nice. <laughs> but she was very kind of refreshingly honest about the fact that she hasn't directed very much. She said to me often that she was channeling Moss Hart, who was the original director of My Fair Lady and who was, was a mentor of hers, and also her late husband, Blake Edwards, who is obviously a very, very famous Hollywood director. So she would tell me this with this sort of look in her eyes, you know. (laughs) So that's very special when someone opens up to you like that and I felt confident to be vulnerable, you know, as well. That made me, that that bolstered me too. Explore your own insight. You mentioned auditions Mm. in that opening answer. I mean, obviously, it's not just one. Mm. How do, how do they progress? Like, I did two auditions initially in Sydney, so a, you know, initial audition and then a and then a, a callback a few days later, and then months later, I did a audition in London. Months later. Months later. Yeah. Did you have to go to London specially? Or you <laughs> no, I was there? living in London oh, at the right, time, okay. so actually, I flew to Sydney specially to audition <laughs> initially. But actually, I was on tour at the time with the show. Um, uh, I was up in. I think Glasgow or something. So there was this like mad couple of days where they were like, "Oh, Julie could fly to Glasgow to see you there," and then you know trying to sort it all out. And then it, it, I, I just ended up getting the train down to um, yes. <laughs> down to. I, I think that was a nice. That was the best thing to do. I won't say that's what got you the part, <laughs> but it, it just shows you, you you're easy to work with. So obviously, this whole experience is the sort of catalyst for this new show yeah. you're putting on. So tell me about why you, you, you wanted to do this show. Becoming Eliza began its life as random scribbles in the margins of my My Fair Lady script, you know, sort of furtively in rehearsals, <laughs> um, you know, insights from Julie, facts that I'd researched, just, you know, and, and also kind of moments in the room that I knew I didn't want to forget in the madness of it all. And about a week and a half in, the wonderful, I always say Dame Robin Nevin. She's not a dame, but I call her Dame Robin Nevin. <laughs> she, she, um, <laughs> we, were, we were doing a scene together and uh, in a little break from the scene, she leaned over to me and she said, are you writing this down? And I said, oh, yes, I am. And I said, oh, okay, it should be slightly more organised in how I'm doing this. Um, so I just continued over time, these sort of morphed into various notebooks, you know, mm. during my two and a half years of playing wow. the role. And then when I finished the job, I spent a couple of weeks just sitting there at my laptop kind of tapping away and wrote a lot about, in a quite a structured way, about mm. the experience. And then my partner was on tour in Germany and I brought my laptop along and sat next to him and wrote something that became a little bit more stage show shaped, a little bit more theatrical mm-hmm. and something book shaped, which I think it had been previously. And then I spoke to my wonderful producer, who's now my producer, Andrew Markey, who's been a friend for a long time. And, um, he said, what are we going to do together? And I said, oh, I've got this, I've got this idea about this, this show about Eliza and maybe using some songs that are associated with Julie. And he said, that's a great idea. Please don't talk to anyone else about it. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, okay, great. And then we've had various, you know, we started talking about that two and a half years ago and um, a little thing called COVID intervened. But oh. it was actually great because all the lockdowns afforded some really good writing and development time on it. It is a one-woman show, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that for me is a COVID show. It's sort of like <laughs> you can rehearse Very COVID yourself. safe, isn't it? I mean, I say, I say one woman, it's... Um, we have piano and a little string trio, a little string trio, yes. and a wonderful yes. string, a ginormous, magnificent mm. string trio. Um, <laughs> so um, we'll very much use that, you know, on on stage to mm. to give some texture and uh, and um, 
grandeur to the show. Mm. But yeah, it is it is ostensibly a one woman show. So it's it's your personal reflections with songs. Yeah, obviously. Is it a tribute to Julie Andrews specifically? How could I not when I'm singing that music? I think every time that I sing a song that's associated with Julie, I sort of have just a little moment of like, thank you, Julie, for the music and for the, you know, for all of us. It's not just a me experience. I I, I think there's something that she gives all of us. Um, But, you know, it's called Becoming Eliza and it's very much about my journey with the character. There are huge parallels with the story of Eliza Doolittle and the journey of the actor playing her in both Pygmalion and in My Fair Lady in, in that it's this um, journey from sort of unconscious incompetence to conscious competence and the determination to do that and the sort of struggles that we see her going through of not getting it, you know. Yes. <laughs> and then finally when she attains it, you know, and, and, that's, and that has a complexity of its own as well that, you know, be careful what you wish for sometimes because it might – lead you somewhere that you didn't expect. So I thought that that was a really interesting structure, that there's this parallel journey that the actor is going through at the same time the character is going through it. Mm. And the character changed me, which is crazy because she's not real. Like, (laughs) she's fictional. But I was interested in that and why fictional characters have the power to make us different, Mm. why they feel like real people to us. And... Of course, there are reflections of working with Julie and I'm singing some songs that she sings. I'm singing some songs. I call them Julie-adjacent songs. So they're, they're songs that are associated with her maybe, right. but maybe in some of my different characters. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To, to sort of illustrate these. To flesh it out. Yeah, to yeah. flesh it out, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, some 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 cut songs uh, from oh. My Fair Lady that maybe ended up in different Lerner and Lowe shows. But it's called Becoming Eliza, you know? yeah. Yeah. Not sort of becoming Julie. <laughs> <laughs> True, absolutely. Because no one uh, can. No one can. No one know? can. No, that would be impossible. Mm. So is there one thing that you think she taught you or that you picked up from her that you've carried on to other roles? Oh, that's a really good question. There are many things that mm. she taught me that I use every day and she was fierce in her determination to protect me from anything that might drain my energy too much or anything, you know, that um, – going too far to the, you know, doing too much. She was very, very aware of, of, and I felt very protective, you know, again, that sort of maternal kind of figure. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. She has low blood sugar. I didn't know this at the time, but she, <laughs> she sometimes went, do you want, you know, if she was eating something, she'd be like, Anna, Anna dear, would you like something? You know, like, you know. um, and again, just so demonstrative of um, her generosity. But in terms of the one thing that I carry was the sense of diction and how I could use my diction to, support it, not only my vocal technique in speaking and in singing but um the storytelling you know and that's a very that's a big Julieism actually when you kind of break it down is is her diction and in how she communicates everything the, the lyric the spoken word and she sort of took me through that in, in quite a minute way and I still I still use that mm. <laughs> proudly <laughs> sounds great well I think we have to have a little bit of the lady herself we now. have to your first selection is of course well how could it not be Julia Andrews. Now, which track is this from My Fair Lady that we're going to hear? Eliza sings five wonderful songs in My Fair Lady, and this is Show Me. Don't talk of stars burning above. If you're in love, show me. Tell me no dreams filled with desire. If you're on fire, show me. When we are together in the middle of the night, don't talk of spring, just hold me tight. Haven't your lips 
Just absolutely awesome. Show me from my fair lady. I mean that performance. The what she, what, what, the thing I love about Julie Andrews though, in her performance, is that way that she can kind of, she's singing, but she's almost talking the words as well. Like oh they're God. so crystal clear. That was one of the first notes she gave me in my very first audition. She said, um, "You have a wonderful voice, and you're singing it too much." Um, you're singing, what did she say? Singing it too you're much. You're singing it too much. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so she said, "I want you to speak it more." Yeah, which was very interesting to me because we associate her with this incredible soprano voice, and she speaks a lot. She, she, mm. and she does the sort of Rex Harrison speaking on pitch as well, mm. very much so. Um, but it's sort of more than speaking on pitch. Almost. Yeah, it it's, is. It's uh, it's got such expression. Yes, it does, and there's sort of a, a muscularity in it as well, which is again not necessarily a word that we would associate with Julie because she's so elegant and so mm. you know that classical you know refinement to her. But there is this undercurrent of muscularity in what she does. I'm curious, though. I mean, I love the song. You know, I love the musical. Show Me is a great song from it, but it's not necessarily the most famous of Eliza's songs. So yeah. was there a particular reason you wanted us to hear that track? That, that was a song that I sang in auditions. So, ah, you know, that was sort of one of the, the, one of the first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was uh, very important to the journey, absolutely. And the sort of first surprising moment when she told me to not sing as much. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was in and the audition, when, was it? I was right. in the audition, yeah. Oh. And, and I, th- I think I sh- sang Show Me first. So I went, oh, so it's going to be that, is it? How interesting. I was very intrigued you know from that moment on and she actually you know it was very surprising because she never really not that she didn't want to look at the score but she'd sort of never you know she had a wonderful music team there and she sort of delegated that and she was very interested in the story always story 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 I'm speaking with actress and soprano Anna O'Byrne. Her show, Becoming Eliza, is on at the Sydney Opera House from the 9th to the 12th of June. Get along to sydneyoperahouse.com for more information and for tickets. Anna, I need to go back to your formative years, if, if I may. Oh, gosh, you're, okay. You're I'll get Melbourne. on the couch. Yes. <laughs> Freud. You're going to come out. Yes, exactly. You're a Melbourne girl. Melbourne girl. Proudly which is, Melbourne. Which is good. I can yep. say that as a Sydney sider. I'm going to say that. Uh, oh, yeah, I, sorry. I, don't deduct I love Sydney too. <laughs> as a little girl. Did you look into the future and see this as the career that was stretched out in front of you? I think probably in my heart of hearts I did, but I was my head of heads was not very happy about that um, <laughs> decision. Not happy about that decision? No, I think that I felt quite um, – I was like, oh, gosh, how dreadfully inconvenient that I really want to do that with my life because it's not very practical, is it? And it's not sort of very – Very risky. Not practical. Mm. Yeah, it is. There's, there's, mm. there's risk and um, I think my analytical brain didn't really um, enjoy that revelation and I looked for various ways that I could circumvent that for a long time. Mm. Until my mum, I was having a conversation with her in the car, 
don't know, probably at about 14 or something where I said, oh, look, I think, I, I think I'm going to try and become a teacher. I'm from a family of teachers. My mother was a, was a teacher. And she said, okay, that's great, darling. Um, what's the dream? And I said, oh, well, I think it's probably to be a performer. And she said, okay, well, let's go for the dream. Mm. And then if that doesn't work out, we can try doing the teaching thing. <laughs> so um, that's good that she supported you in that. She wasn't saying, "Oh yeah. no, look, look, look! You're never going to make any money. It's too hard." <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure perhaps those thoughts go through go through the head of parents, but I always felt incredibly supported. But I'm very, very lucky to be able to say that. But you were, were always singing from a, a very young age. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was in the Australian Girls Choir from you know. Very about four or five, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly, and um, played violin. And yeah. music was a huge part of my upbringing. My mum was music a music generally. teacher, ah, yeah, right, yeah. Teacher, so, yes. but not only because of that, because I because I really enjoyed it, you mm. know. <laughs> so, so you must have been in school shows. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. I played the little engine that could in you know, a grade three, you know, first starring role, title title. Role. Is there a big solo number in that? Or? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was like, I think I can, I think I can, I think oh, I have a plan and I can do most anything if I just think I can. <laughs> you remember that from, what, you know, when you were five it's, or it's six. Embedded, or it's, it's embedded, embedded in my brain. Thing, that's the great thing is about those things that you learn when you're a kid though, isn't it? Oh, yeah, they're, they're there. Yeah. yeah, the show I did a year ago, can't remember it at all. Yeah, but like, you I know. can't remember a note, <laughs> yeah. but I can remember when I sang when I was five. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what else was school like? I mean, you were obviously able to integrate your singing into into the curricula and everything like that. Yeah, I went I went to two fantastic schools that had great drama and music programs that weren't necessarily you know focused on that, but just had great people at the helm of those programs and and people who wanted to challenge the students as well, which I think is really important not to underestimate. So, as a child, who were your idols in J- the industry? Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews, well, hundred <laughs> percent. Emma Thompson. Yeah. Because you do perform with Emma Thompson later, I don't did, you? yeah. Gosh. You're just ticking off all your idols. Just ticking, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh gosh, who else have I got to dream bigger? <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, they're all still alive. So what was working with Emma Thompson like? Oh, incredible. And she's another person. It just, it, it's exactly what you see. And that was Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and she, you know, she's a theatre animal as well. So she was very keen on everybody warming up together at the start mm. of the day and the collegial environment backstage and um, standing up for things that weren't right. And ah. um, she and Bryn Turfell threw us the most amazing closing night party. Just, oh, wow. <laughs> just now that's a party to be at. <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> you should have put a story about that in Becoming Eliza. I don't, I don't care. That's got nothing related, to do with but... <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> but I'm sure there's a story there. Um, so what was it about the style of this sort of musical theatre singing that attracted you? Like, did you ever want to be like a pop star? Like you, you weren't wanting to go in the kind of the, the Kylie Minogue direction? No, my voice just didn't really do that. Mm. And I think coming from a classical background with my violin training, you know, there are certain parallels between the violin and, and the voice. And so I think I was just always skewed in that kind of direction. But, yeah, I just never, I just never really... My voice didn't really ever do that, mm. and it sort of did something that was a bit different. Because I suggested opera as well in the introduction, but you are primarily doing musical theatre. I mean, you have some done some opera, haven't you? Yeah, well, I trained as an opera singer, and I have, you know, worked in genuine opera. And there came a point where I was very – where I literally saw the two roads diverging in the wood. And yes, because they, they would have to diverge, wouldn't they? They do, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm. For the four years that I was at, um, at university, I very much said goodbye to the musical theatre side of my life. Right. Yeah, and and didn't didn't think anything. Yeah. Put that in a box. It was better. It was better for my development um, to do that, and happily did it. You know, and 
now I really do miss some of that incredible music that mm. I don't get the chance to sing it. So what is it about the singing style which you do have to put in a box or and open up again and you know Well, for classical singing you're working without microphones. Mm. So the the nuance in the voice has to travel. And it's not necessarily that the voice needs to be loud all the time. It's that it needs to have be focused and have carrying power to hit the back wall of the theatre over a large orchestra. So some of the nuance of musical theatre is very much designed to be sung into a microphone for my voice type, maybe. And then there's also the the the, the different um, vocal technique of mixing and belting, which... You know, we're talking about a slightly higher larynx position, maybe. Oh, yeah. We're talking about a different configuration of the mm. vocal tract. There are some principles that carry over. Again, that focus in the sound is very important. Mm. And you're also dealing with a di- – I'm just getting very – really technical here. Um, you're, you're dealing with a different vibration of the vocal folds mm. where they will remain closed for a longer period of time in every vibration that happens. So, so it's just – and, you know, like I started my training when I was – 18 years old, so that, you know, my, my, my serious training. operatic serious. training. Yeah. Um, and so your instrument's still developing. It's mm. still developing at, you know, 25, 26. So it was just better for, for me not to do that. And mm. I, I, I was happy to do that as well. That was yeah. a very definite decision. I mean, it has been sort of explained to me as well that, you know, that the opera singing is sort of down here and the other singing is kind of higher up. And I think that's what you're saying. Or is that yeah, right? yeah, it's just a different setup yeah. physically. But I suppose once you get to, once you're exercising one set of the muscles and the style, mm. you, you kind of, you, you need to pursue that direction. Mm. You, and we didn't even talk you... about style. I mean, that's the, oh, you know, that's yeah, the thing yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, vibrato, completely different relationship with vibrato, maybe mm. with legato happening. There's, yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, after that little um, lesson of the throat <laughs> and the lungs, I think we have to have another piece of music if that's all right. You've got some Clara Schumann now. This is a, a more of the classical, yeah. in the classical vein. What have you got for us here? Liebst du um Schönheit? By the wonderful Clara Schumann. Barbara Bonney, the soprano with pianist Vladimir Ashkenazi for Clara Schumann's Liebst du um Schönheit, the second choice of my guest in conversation today, the soprano and actor Anna O'Byrne. She is becoming Eliza at the Sydney Opera House from the 9th to the 12th of June. Sydneyoperahouse.com for more information and tickets. Anna, why did we want to hear that? A couple of reasons. I used to sing it at college and I thought it was really important to put a female composer on my list. <laughs> Yeah. Right? So that was very important to me. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that you picked that version because Barbara Bonney was a huge inspiration when I was at, at um, university. Mm. She was someone who started out as, as a cellist and has great musicianship in her. She sang a lot of the similar repertoire and roles that I was looking at. Um, and I just think she's 
She's another performer like Julie who has such I, – I find her quite um, distinctive and iconic in, mm. in, in how she approaches uh, the text and the musicality. I just found her really exciting, yeah, mm. when I was at college. Mm. Fascinating. So you burst out of the Victorian College of the Arts and within weeks you get a gig with the touring production of Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. That's landing on your feet. It was, yeah. <laughs> So tell me about how that uh, came about. That was my two roads in the wood uh, moment there. Uh, I was having a coaching with uh, the wonderful Michael Black, who was at that time the chorus master at Opera Australia. You know, it was like at five o'clock, the last coaching of the day down at the Opera Centre in Melbourne. And um, I'd sung my Handel and my Mozart and we'd worked on all of that. And then we were packing away the, the piano, setting up for whatever rehearsal was happening after us. And um, he said, oh, Anna, do you, um, do you sing any musical theatre? And I was like, no, um, what have you heard? Like, <laughs> like, I do that. I know. <laughs> who, who told you that? Someone's um, found all the Julie Andrews DVDs in your <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Like after four years of not 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 doing that at at, um, at college, and um, and and I said, oh, um, it, sure. Um, and uh, and he said, oh yeah, because um, a, a director friend of mine who, who's worked for the opera company is the resident director on this touring production of Phantom and they can't find a Christine understudy. If I email him, would you go in for an audition? And I said yes and I think that was on Friday and then I was going into audition on a Monday and then mm. I got the job a couple of days later and then like literally two weeks later I was on tour. I was like flying over to Perth to be put into the show. It was so quick and I had I had a couple of opera contracts lined up with Opera Australia um, schools touring and in the chorus, again, through Michael Black. And I had this moment where I had to choose in a very short period of time. And I went with, and it felt like, <laughs> felt like a very big decision. And I went with, with Phantom in the end. And I'm very glad I did. I mean, everything would have worked out, you know, but, um, but I, I learnt that was a, it, that, that show was a complete Baptism of Fire in the best way because it is the biggest. It wasn't just some small little show. It is the biggest technical production. I was coming into this fully established ecosystem within the company. And the wonderful thing about Phantom is there's people of all ages and from all. There are people from the ballet world. There are people from the opera world. There are amazing actors in it. So I was just playing sponge on this huge like behemoth of a set, you know. Mm. <laughs> As an understudy for Christine, are you also in the chorus or are yeah. you only the understudy? Yeah, no. yeah. So you get to be in the show every night, which is which is incredible. And then I went on, I went on within, I think, four weeks of being in the four show weeks. for Christine. Yeah. Did you feel ready? Yeah, yeah. But I it had... still must have been interesting. Oh, it was, yeah, absolutely. And I went on with um, with Anthony Warlow the first time and he said, that, you know, because there's a whole point where, again, the, the journey sort of mirrors for Christine mirrors the actor playing her where, and particularly when, when you're the understudy because the lead diva goes, storms out and then Meg says, Christine Day could sing it to her. And, you, she, and the, the chorus girl, you know, like literally is the journey of the and understudy. The understudy yes. And everybody's watching you in your first time, do you know, do, doing it in front of the full company as well with everything, you know, the lights and the costumes and everything happening. So anyway, and then you sing Think of Me and then you get in the boat with the fan, and the Phantom appears and you get in the boat together. <laughs> Anthony, <laughs> Anthony said, I was in the boat and you're at the front of the boat and the Phantom's behind you. And he said, there's one point where he meant to sort of look around it's very sort of dreamlike that sequence you know the electric guitars and things I meant to look around at him and he said I just turned around to him with this rictus of like horror on my face just going what have you 
doing? Like, <laughs> complete, because you're running on adrenaline and you just, you often do quite a good show for your first show because it's so, everything's very everything's live. 110%. And then often the sh- second show is a bit more, you've got more time to think. So you're sort of double thinking everything. So often the second show is a bit of a, you know, a dip down necessarily or you make mistakes or whatever. Mm. But my, my first show was very, you know, that, that, that feeling of adrenaline carrying you through is, is amazing. So how, how long in advance do you know that you're going to go on? Oh, I had as an understudy. I had out. I remember it was we'd done a matinee on a Wednesday, mm. and I'd gone with with my friend Eleanor, who was a swing in the show. Uh, we were at we were in Perth, and we'd gone to the the um, there was a pool complex next door. So we were like, great, let's go, let's go to the pool in between shows. It'd be such fun. And I like put out my towel, and then I got the call, <laughs> and I was like. Sorry, I'm going on. I have to go back to the theatre. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I went on for the evening show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was good because I was already warmed up and I couldn't overthink it too much. Yeah, I suppose the good thing is you're not given like days or or, or a week to prepare. Yeah, and mentally lose sleep. Yeah. Uh, over it, I guess. But what is the process of rehearsing as an understudy? Because I've always been curious watching shows, and I think, well, the, the understudy gets to go on, you know, on this day or on that day, or for, for whatever reason. But of course, the rehearsal period is dedicated to the main yeah. lead. So you're kind of having to pick it up and go on with far less rehearsal yeah. than, the, than the actual, than the primary performer. Yeah, well, the onus is on you to really do your homework and mm. to keep to keep running it, to keep it fresh. Because mm. um, days and weeks can go days, by. Days and weeks it. can go by. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, happen, yeah. And and because I was joining the company, we were five new company members joining at the same time, so we were all learning the show, like by ourselves. Mm. <laughs> this massive show, and there's five of us pretending to be everybody in the show. Um, so so yeah, that was. So I sort of felt like every cumulative step going forward, they were adding more and more elements until finally I went on for Christine with the full shebang happening. Yeah. Yeah, works well. Well, while we're in an Andrew Lloyd Webber kind of mood, um, we need to talk about the other uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, which Christine is in, that you get to, we don't premiere it because you're not the world premiere, but you um, are Christine in Love Never Dies in Melbourne. That's a bit of a reworking of the show because it didn't actually get off to the greatest of starts in London, did it? Yeah, I think um, Andrew's been quite open about that. I just think it wasn't quite the version that uh, wonderful people involved in that um, production doing great work, but I just don't think it was quite aligned with maybe what his creative vision had been for it. So then uh, when the show came to Australia, it was entirely redesigned, redirected, bits of the show were swapped around. They, in fact, put some of our changes into the London production. Right. Simon Phillips was our director and he has an amazing creative brain, fabulous sense of structure and how the the big pieces of the show work together. So, yeah, it felt to all intents and purposes like a new production and we were absolutely encouraged to see it as such. Mm. Were you kind of part of that workshopping, if that's the right word for it? Yeah, that was part of um, the audition process was a, a, right. a day, actually it was one of the most exciting days in my career was for a final audition going and singing the whole score with what turned out to be pretty much the principal cast um, and Simon saying, okay, that's great. Now can we change this line here? I've got a new bit of lyric for you. Instead of singing this, can you sing that? We're putting – so exciting. And what mm. that that's what you dream of, you know, as an actor, to be able to put your own stamp on things. And, yeah, then in rehearsals, um, I remember there's this music box that before the entrance of the Phantom where they meet again um, that Christine's meant to wind up and it's meant to play a different – tune it's meant to start playing you know her son's been playing with it beforehand it plays a sort of a jolly tune and then but when she's by herself she's meant to wind it up and it plays this sort of it's not masquerade the little masquerade thing it, it's a music box in in the set like you yeah. know there's a carryover from phantom it's a different design mm. 
And I said to Simon, I was like, I just think it should play by itself at the moment that she's alone. I should just – and he went, okay, that's interesting. And then he came in the next day with this like sort of comically distressed look on his face and he said, Anna, I've been on the phone all night with our designer trying to make <laughs> work out how to get this music box to play by itself. Anyway, they did. They worked it out and it worked out the, the, you know, for, for, the, for the good of the show, I think. It's still in, in the show to this day. <laughs> Was it a hindrance or a help that you'd been, Christine, in Phantom? Help, I think, yeah, absolutely. I felt like I – like I understand, like I understand her, and could take her journey on ten years later. And you could see that in the in the script that it was the same Christine. Yeah. Ten years. Yeah. Later. Yeah. I understand it was filmed. Yeah. Filmed in the sense it's like a concert performance. Is that right? Or it was a fully staged. Fully staged. Yeah. yeah. So we, I believe, the kids these days would call it a pro shot. I think that's what it's called. A pro shot. Yeah. Well, we had a new. We had so so Simon came back. That we went dark for three days, so we did. We filmed a lot of the show without audience, with an amazing filmic director, Brett Sullivan. So we restaged a couple of things to to make make them make a bit more sense. We right. had cameras on the stage with us, uh, so we had three days. Uh, sorry, four days of filming, and then we did a live show on the evening of the fourth day. I mean, I just right. I've never sung so much in my life. Like, it was just yeah. so much. The and that's a lot more than just doing it. Eight nights a week or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's an operatic show. Like it is mm. genuinely. And we, I, I did eight shows a week for that show. That was just <laughs> – anyway. So And we lost our days off because we were filming right over them. It was yeah. crazy. But so that, this is actually in the middle of the run. They don't just finish the show yeah, and then – the, Yeah, in the middle of a Melbourne winter. It was so <laughs> – I don't know how I – a little bit like childbirth. I don't know how or quite how that occurred. But at the end you get this beautiful baby out of it. Um, but, yeah, we did this – and because we had the audience come in for this last live show, which they filmed as well, the, the energy – because it was all our fans, you know, I mean, everybody knew who who was associated with the show knew that this was going to be a special performance. So all the fans bought tickets and we had family there and it was just the energy. And I think they thought that they were going to use about like 20% of that live show. And right. I think they ended up using like about 50% because it was just the, that energy was just, you know, right there. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I think we have to have another piece of music now. And uh, we're going into the world of Francis Poulenc. Yeah, I wrote my honours dissertation. Oh yes, on Poulenc. So uh, this music means a lot to me. Hotel from Francis Poulenc. Uh, that was your, th- what you're, like your dissertation. Yeah. 
I mean, thesis for want of a better Theta word. Thesis, yes. Yeah, yeah. All about just one. Oh, it was all about Poulenc. Yeah, yeah, but, it was. Um, and the, the sort of the essential Parisian quality of, of his music. I mean, don't you just feel like you're no, yes. sat, like, you know, yeah. in some garret somewhere? Mm. It's just sort of. There is a bit of a, I won't say musical theatre quality, because it's not that, but it, it, I can it's I can a, hear it in something like yeah. a fantasy. I mean, one of those kind of slower, moodier pieces. So it, is, it all kind of crosses over, doesn't it? Yeah, it There's does. No and again, that sent, you know, he, he was, um, Poulenc was, uh, chose his, uh, I'm almost going to say lyricists. They weren't, but there were a lot mm. of contemporary poets that he was working with setting their poems to music. And again, this, that, that sense of storytelling is really on the front foot. Anna O'Byrne is my guest in conversation today. She is becoming Eliza at the Sydney Opera House. You can get along to sydneyoperahouse.com to find out more. It's running, it's only four, four shows only, only four, 9th to the 12th of June. Anna, can, how can you only have four? That's not allowed. <laughs> 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 have to come back and do more <laughs> Oh, wouldn't wouldn't it be lovely? Yeah, uh, <laughs> more of that. I, we should be in the other in the other studio so we can do a full on live performance. <laughs> I didn't tell you about that, did I? <laughs> now, like uh, many performers in this industry, you end up in Britain. Well, Britain or New York? It's it's one or the other. So, what takes you to London? When we finished Love Never Dies, I I just wanted to get out and do do something different and, and and be out of Australia. You know, I've always had a bit of a wanderlust in me, and I just really felt that that was the time. We were on tour, so all my belongings were packed up anyway. I didn't really have anything tying me there, mm. and I went to New York. I'd never been, saw a lot of theatre, and then I went to London. And I sort of thought, oh well, I might just give it a go and see see what what sort of takes my fancy. <laughs> Oh, so you just went to – no, that's great. So you only went to New York just for a holiday. I went to New York for a holiday and then to London after that and I had a couple of auditions lined up in London. But I was sort of like, oh, I'll just see which one feels – yeah, okay, yeah. And, and you know, I had friends um, in in both cities and Andrew said, oh, I hear you're in in London. Why didn't you tell me? And I did an audition for um, Phantom and then – here we are. Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> so you're you going to go Phantom, Love Never Dies, Phantom. Yeah, to sandwich <laughs> but, but, it together. But this, yeah. but this time uh, <laughs> on the West End. Yeah. So stepping into a role like that on the West End, I mean, it's one thing to do a touring production in, mm. your, in your home country, mm-hmm. but then to go to perform it in the home of mm-hmm. that uh, production, what's going through your mind? And can you just step into it with everything that you've remember from the no, Australian production? No, no you can't. Uh, and you can't step into it with everything from Love Never Dies as well because well, that, no, that would that's not the be. But it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, it's interesting because when you've played a role for, you know, a year as I did on tour with, with Love Never Dies, it sort of imprints itself on you. You know, you're mm. kind of carrying the, the, the weight of that, of, of every time you, you explore the show, every every night and like twice on matinee days, you know. So I had to just let go of all of that. And like the wonderful thing is that um, I was working with different actors. So that was that that makes the experience new yes. every time of, of being informed by that. And I didn't want to kind of shoehorn my experiences into mm. being in the show. But it's so, you know, I mean, it's in the show that it was created to be in. So some of the technical aspects of the show are different, you know. They do, they do some things, I think, in London that maybe didn't fly with um, OH&S elsewhere. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> It's exciting. Love it. There were a few pyrotechnics going off a bit closer than that. Yeah, because I wasn't sure because I know with these sorts of productions, they try and make them as similar as possible in in all the key ways. Obviously, you know, different casts are going to bring different things to it. I mean, you see that it's it's not the same, but nevertheless, if you could have, if you had needed to step in almost immediately knowing the role. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, there's just, 
there are certain things that change. You could probably, you know, if you had a couple of hours of rehearsal, you could go on. <laughs> so from the other, we've talked about you being the understudy and, and, and stepping in and Anthony Wallace's <laughs> reaction to you. <laughs> what about when the situation's reversed and you're the lead and you've got the Phantom or Raul or someone? Oh, I love it. I love it. I love I love that new energy that that mm. comes in, you know, and it's often you know, it's oftentimes in the course of an eight show week. It's really lovely to have something slightly different. Mm. You hear a line in a different way or the relationship is slightly different. You know, it's just, it's really interesting. I really enjoy that. Yeah, mm. live, the- live theatre. Gosh, yeah, yeah that's why we do Because it. it's not the same every night. It's the same no. but different. Well, you um, hope it's not the same every night. <laughs> no, it can't be the same every night. So do you ever struggle with that aspect of theatre that, oh, my God, I've done this a hundred times or however many? Not really. I um, The wonderful Guy Simpson, who is the MD on Becoming Eliza and who I've worked with many times and gave me my first job in Phantom, he um, <laughs> I remember him coming backstage once and Love Never Dies, and and I said, oh, I'm just I'm feeling a bit under the weather. I just just letting you know, you know, just in case any temp you need to change or whatever. And um, he said, Oh, we'll just go at seventy percent. He was like, a bit, you know, like that that'll be yeah. Well, you know, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully your performance is kind of crafted at seventy yeah. percent. It will come across as a hundred percent to an audience. Yeah. But you know, just so you're not, you know, eight shows a week, just so you're keeping something in the tank. And so I did in Act One what I thought was seventy. Percent, and then he came backstage in the interval, and he was like, "That that that was like ninety five. What are you doing?" Like, <laughs> so I'm sort of one of those performers who doesn't really, to my detriment, probably doesn't really leave anything in the dressing room, so mm. to speak. Like it's all out there on stage. So I think that's been the challenge of mine is to work out what that looks like in a long run, mm. and how how to do that in a way that sort of keeps something for Anna, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So your career continues to blossom in London. You you basically just effectively move there, don't you, for a while? Yeah, yeah. So tell me about some of the other shows because you've got uh, – I mean, we, we mentioned Sweeney Todd before yeah. and, the, um, and the after party. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure whether it's G-rated, so we probably can't go into Oh, no, it, it was not. Nothing, nothing salacious happened. It no, was no. just – it was a truly wonderful party. Oh, David. <laughs> Don't be disappointing. Uh, the, <laughs> you do Barnum. Uh, so, so what were some of those? Um, yeah, well, I went. I went straight. I um, I, I got the job in Barnum. It was the same producer. It was Cameron McIntosh, right. and he, you know, again, I, I auditioned for Barnum and um, going. Oh, this actually, I'm meant to be that finishing my contract when we're in rehearsals, and of course, that's Cameron. Oh, it's not an issue. You know, <laughs> we'll just get you <laughs> get you over to Barnum, and then. Straight off that, booked my first play in the West End, which is called Strangers on a Train, produced by Barbara Broccoli, who does the Bond mm. films, you know, so that was another, you know, huge moment of working with some um, incredible actors. Yeah, and things just kept happening. And then I did uh, another reworking of an Andrew Lloyd Webber show called The Woman in White mm. at the Charing Cross Theatre. So it was ve- initially when that show happened, it was a very big spectacle. And then this version was very... Um, you know, it's, it was it, it, it's essentially a show just about a few characters at its heart. So we sort of, you know, very Victorian kind of melodrama. Mm. So we did a big reworking of that, um, again, with Andrew in the room a lot, which was really, really mm. exciting. So you do obviously like the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber. I mean, if you're in three oh, yeah. of his uh, yeah. <laughs> three of his things, <laughs> why do you think it speaks to us as, as modern audiences? He captures the classical spirit in a sort of anarchic way we so you know he's so much well well, you know i mean like lord andrew lord Webber. you know we sort of see him so much as part of the establishment but he sort of he what you know think about jesus christ superstar when that came out like that was unexpected and he he's sort of quite interested in that i think breaking expectations and he's constantly 
trying new things. I mean, think about School of Rock on Broadway recently mm. or he's very interested in in how his music can shift and change with the times and, of course, the classical side of it appeals to me. He writes with a soprano voice, which not a lot of uh, modern musical theatre composers do. Very thrillingly for the soprano voice, you know. Very thrillingly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that really um, appeals to me. Some of the music of the night, you know, the, the mm. melodies are just exquisite. Mm. Well, I think we have to have a bit of Andrew Lloyd Webber now and, in fact, from The Woman in White. So which track have we got from this production? We're going to have Trying Not to Notice, which is what, which was probably my favourite song to sing in The Woman in White. Look away and I still see him there I'm trying not to notice him I can't help but stare No gazing No your place Words that I'd be wise to tell myself I close my eyes And I still see her face I'm trying not to notice her but I don't stand a chance I'm trying not to notice him Yet I return each glance A thousand contradictions Are stirring in my soul They seem to grow in me Overflow in me In spite of my convictions I'm losing my control I'm slightly shocked inside Not to notice from Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Woman in White, the original West End cast there. Uh, and that was the final choice of my guest in conversation today, the soprano and actor Anna O'Byrne. Set the scene of that one because The Woman in White, has that actually come to Australia? No. Gosh, I wish it would. Mm. Yeah. It's uh, it's your classic Victorian melodrama. A um, impoverished um, artist <laughs> comes to uh, to a country estate, Limeridge House, to teach two young women how to paint. And of course, there's a love triangle that ensues, and there's Surely mistaken <laughs> identity, and there's people that you think that are dead that are not. You know, all just with this glorious Andrew Lloyd Webber music pulsing right the way through it. It's very, it's almost through sung. You know, mm. yeah. So that's that's the scene of it. That's the be- very beginning of the love triangle there that you're seeing, mm. hearing. <laughs> when you started working on the West End, did you notice any difference in the way they worked to the way Australian companies work? Yeah, I did. Firstly, one of the first questions I got asked was, when are you going to take your holidays? And I went, what, excuse me? In, in Britain? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my company manager on Phantom said, yes, you need to put in for your holidays now because they'll all go and you won't have, you know, you won't be able to take the good times to take your holidays. And I just sort of went, what, I take holidays? I'm like, having started. never <laughs> taken shows off in my life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You very much get the um, feeling of being a jobbing actor. It does feel slightly more like a job in the best possible way, not in the sort of the mundane way, just mm. in the sense that like, yes, probably holidays might be a good idea, you know. <laughs> so less good on OHS, but, OHS, but better on... <laughs> 
on on taking annual leave, right? Yeah. Because I suppose in Australia, you, you need to take the opportunities as as and when they occur. Yeah, yeah. And 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 you're a contract. You know, I mean, we're always contract workers, but uh, you know, you if you take a West End contract, it's a thirteen month contract, a month of rehearsals, and then you're you're twelve months of show, and then lots of people stay on. You know, like if you're fortunate mm. enough to be asked to stay on, so you can be on a show for five years if you like. Yeah, so that's that's a really important concept, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was slightly strange to me, though, coming into that for the first time. So what are the roles you feel you haven't yet got to that you need to? I get this question sometimes and I'm a little bit allergic to dream roles. I played Mrs Lovett when I was 17 years old <laughs> and I'd like to have another crack when I'm age-appropriate. <laughs> Without the additional makeup. Without the additional makeup, yeah. That sounds good. That sounds something to aspire to. <laughs> Anna O'Byrne, thank you so much for taking the time to be in conversation with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Actress and soprano Anna O'Byrne, her one-woman show, Becoming Eliza, is on at the Sydney Opera House from the 9th to the 12th of June. Get along to sydneyoperahouse.com to find out more and for ticket information. Well, that's all for In Conversation for today. You can find previous editions at 2mbsfindmusicsydney.com slash inconversation or by searching 2MBS In Conversation in your preferred podcast app. I'm Simon Moore and this is 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. <laughs>